Well, hey, this morning, I want to try to condense what we covered in our New Hall Bible study last semester. We studied uh, the attributes of God, the character of God, and we looked at each of these different attributes in depth. But this morning, I want to whet your appetite for further study and for further exploration. I'll be in Exodus 3 today, but I'll take the scenic route to get there. Exodus 3, you can turn there if you like. Maybe you're familiar with A.W. Tozer's famous quote. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the what? The most important thing about you. It is the most important element of your thinking. How you view God, that is, determines, dictates, and defines the rest of the way you live your life. Your love for God, and we sing great songs about our love for God, but your love for God and my love for God will never be higher than our ideas and thoughts of God. The most revealing thing about a nation is their view of God. The most revealing thing about a church is their view of God. And the most revealing thing about your life is your view of God. A low view of God leads to low views of his holiness, which leads to low views of your sin. And if you have low views of your sin, you will assuredly have low views of the cross. And if you have low views of the cross, you will have low views of grace. And if your view of grace is low, it will never be amazing, even if that's what you sing. Your life is the overflow of what you think about God. As your knowledge of God goes, so goes the rest of your life. Our view of God are the lenses, the spectacles by which we see all situations, all struggles, and all sorrows. Our view of God determines how we think, speak, act, and spend our time, talents, and treasures. Everything in your life hinges on who you believe God to be. And this is why studying God and his character and his attributes and knowing him intimately, not just as an academic exercise, but knowing him intimately and deeply is such a worthwhile endeavor. I remember reading these words from Spurgeon when I was 19. They stuck out to me. He says, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity. It's so deep that our pride is drowned in its infamy. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go away with the thought, Behold, I am wise." But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation tends to humble the mind than great thoughts of God. But the knowledge of God doesn't just humble our mind. It exhilarates our mind. And that's why when we look to God's word, it should never just be a puffing up of knowledge. Paul says it's dangerous. It should exhilarate us. The knowledge of God should give us great reason to boast. One of the verses that stuck out to me last year was Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, which says, this is what the Lord says, quote, let no man boast of his wisdom. 
nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, colon, that he understands and knows me. You are made to boast. You are made to want to proclaim something. And you are made to boast in this, that you understand, but not merely understand. The text says that you understand and know God. That's our goal this morning, that we study and behold God's character and that we know him. Now, by way of introduction, I want to set the scene for you for where we'll be in Exodus chapter 3. In chapter 1, verse 8, there's this ominous introduction that if you've seen the prince of Egypt, maybe you understand what's going on here. It says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Anyone who is familiar with the story kind of immediately feels the weight of this statement. Genesis ends with the people of God moving into the land of Goshen, where Joseph is serving as the prime minister. And in these early days, they enjoyed the favor of Pharaoh. But it says a new Pharaoh comes to power. He does not know Joseph. And with it, there is a radical shift in the relationship between the Jewish immigrants and their host country of Egypt. So this new Pharaoh has a problem. He doesn't want the Israelites to leave because the entire economy depended upon them. But at the same time, he doesn't want them to become so numerous and strong so that there would be an insurrection. He wanted them to remain in Egypt, but he wanted them to remain weak. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the result was an Egyptian people who were in dread of the people of Israel. Pharaoh's fear escalates to a degree that we read in verse 15. He says that they're going to, 12 through 14, that they're going to destroy them. But there's a group of people in verse 17. It says that, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Verse 20 says, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. Now watch this. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to carry. So she places this baby, and we think of a basket. The word there in Hebrew is actually a little ark. And she puts this baby in a little ark and places it amongst the reeds. And in the providence of God, a woman comes down to bathe at the river. And it's not just any woman. It's Pharaoh's daughter. She draws him out of the water And names him Moses accordingly. And it would be 80 years from that moment when God would meet Moses at a burning bush. Moses' life is a series of three 40-year periods. For 40, he's raised as a prince. For 40, he's a shepherd. And for 40, he leads the people. So by the time we arrive in chapter 3, the people of God have been in bondage for 400 years Moses at this point is a fugitive, a murderer, and an 80-year-old shepherd. Nothing in his life is significant right now. It says in verse 1 that he's pasturing the flock, and he's going right to the base of Mount Horeb and back. This is the west side of the wilderness. If you've ever been to Israel, there's just a land of jagged rocks, wild animals. Nothing is growing here. It's a desert ravaged by wind and beasts, weather and sun. 
Moses is unseen by everyone except for God. And for 40 years, this is what he does every single day. He wasn't a prince anymore. He's not a sovereign ruler. He's a shepherd. No one ever had to ask Moses, what are you up to this week? Let me read our text. I'm in Exodus 3, 1 through 15. I want to read the whole passage for us. It says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold... The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let's stop there. Now, as we read this chapter, God, Yahweh, is going to commission Moses to deliver his people through his power. But this chapter and this book is not about Moses' commissioning as much as it is about the character of the God who commissions Moses. In fact, you can't even begin to understand Moses' mission if you do not understand who Yahweh is. And so in this third chapter, I told you, I want to condense what we studied last semester, and I want to feature seven attributes of God that are revealed to Moses in this encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush. Seven attributes of God. But first, what is an attribute? An attribute is anything that we attribute to God. It's whatever God has revealed about himself to be true. So even though God is transcendent, he's above us. His ways are not like us. He has revealed himself in a way where God can be understood and intimately known. This is what an attribute is. The attributes of God are the answers to the question, what is God like? 
And these answers are not merely academic. I, I work at an academic institution. One of the things I so deeply want students to understand is these answers aren't just so that we can know them. They are heart-wrenching, soul-inspiring, life-altering, worldview-shifting, sin-slamming, joy-producing, evangelistic, encouraging realities that satisfy the cravings of our intellects, ravish our souls, and foster communion with our Creator. When we look at these attributes, they should light us on fire because they're true. And each of these attributes that we will look at this morning, we will ascribe to God's name. God's name is not God. God's name is Yahweh. And that's why there's excitement about a new translation because 6,800 times in the Old Testament, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And when God reveals himself to Moses, he does not do so by giving him a title. He does so by introducing his name. When people ask me about my wife, I don't say she's five foot seven. She has brown hair, sometimes blonde, depending on the mood. No, I say my wife, my wife is Katie Jean. And when God introduces himself, he says, my name is Yahweh. That's important because... God is a personal God. And if he's personal, that means he's knowable. And so each of these attributes we will ascribe to his name. His name is Yahweh. Number one, let's look at verses one and two. Yahweh is self-existent and self-sufficient. In verse two, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked And behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. The image that greets Moses is itself an illustration of one of Yahweh's attributes. The question is, who started this fire? What was the fire's cause? There was no fire starter. There was no cause. And this is a fitting image of God himself. This is presumably a bramble bush which finds its home in the area of the desert, but there's nothing supernatural about this bush in of itself. This bush, in fact, was not burning. We call it the burning bush, but the bush was not burning. The fire was in the bush, but not of the bush. This fire is self-existent. R.C. Sproul says that there are three possible explanations for anything that exists. Number one, it is self-created. Number two, it is eternal. And number three, it was created by something that is eternal. Self-creation, eternality, or something created by an eternal being. And when the first one is eliminated as a logical fallacy that nothing can actually self-create, what is left is only an eternal being and that which the eternal being creates. And in contrast to this idea of self-creation, there is this idea of self-existence or the idea theologically of aseity, aseity, ah from, say, himself. God is from himself. And what makes God different than people, stars, or galaxies is his aseity. He alone exists by his own power. No one made God, no one caused God. And this is a quality that no creature shares with God. God owes his being to nothing and no one outside of himself. This is our God, uncreated and uncaused. But not only that, it says the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed because God is uncreated, uncaused, and self-sustained. We, you know, watch the news, and whenever there's a forest fire, we know that eventually it'll go out, right? It'll, it'll be done with. Why? Because there's nothing left to burn, But this fire is entirely independent of what the bush provides to sustain its burning. Like the God who would call and commission Moses, 
This fire is self-sustained. The question every kid asks is who made God? Everything in their life has been made by something. And it would be be foolish to say, don't ask that question. It's at this point we are constrained to get on our knees before our kids and say, honey, sweetie, this is what makes God, God. No one made God. We come into being and then we cease to be. God is. And you and I, sweetie, can be sustained only by a God who sustains himself. Moses needs to understand this. Yahweh is self-existent and self-sustained. Number two, Yahweh speaks. Look at verse four. It says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. This word for called in Hebrew, when God is addressing Moses, is not like a, a whisper in the wind. It's not a rustling of the leaves. And it's like, what was that? What was that? Moses, Moses. You know? No, it's the same word. We're studying Jonah in the New Hall Bible study right now. And there's five Hebrew words in Jonah's whole, in Jonah's whole sermon. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight English, five Hebrew. And it says, Jonah cried out with a loud voice. And that same word for called is the same word here used when God speaks to Jonah. It's not Moses, Moses. It's Moses, Moses. And he calls Moses to himself because he speaks. We hear this type of statement far too casually and indifferently because we live in a world where people say things like, God told me. Not like this. Ancient deities didn't talk. This was unusual. This was alarming. But this is going to be Moses' greatest guide and comfort over the following 40 years that Yahweh reveals himself and Yahweh speaks. But it's not only going to be Moses' greatest guide and comfort. It's also going to be to Moses the greatest demonstration of God's glory. 30 chapters later, if you recall, Moses is in the midst of a great crisis. He leads the people out of Israel or out of Egypt and they turn their backs on God and they're worshiping a golden baby cow. And Moses' plea at that moment of great crisis is what? Oh God, show me your what? Glory. I wanna know your glory. And how does Yahweh respond? Well, he says, I will do two things. I'm gonna mount a pulpit. I'm gonna preach a two-part sermon. I'm going to preach my character, and proclaim my name. When God wants you to understand something about his glory, he speaks. He shows Moses his backside, but he says, first things first, I'm going to tell you my name, and then I'm going to tell you my nature. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, yet I will by no means spare the guilty. We need a speaking God, and we need a revealing God. And Moses' first encounter with God is a God who speaks. This is so important. Now, if I was to ask you to imagine your favorite vacation spot, this is like an interesting exercise. Maybe you'd be like a beach, the mountains, a lake house, anywhere in 2019 before COVID, whatever it might be. Maybe you have some things that you're like, oh, take me back, brother. Acai bowl in 2019. Now you have pictures that come to your head. But when I ask you, imagine God for me. You're going to use the raw materials that you've grown up around with Pixar movies, and that's going to be your idea of God. You're going to think of Gandalf, Zeus, Hercules, I don't know. And so we need a God who reveals himself in words. This is not just the problem for us. This is a problem for even the prophets. How do we define God? I want you to see this. So can you turn to Ezekiel 1? How do 
fallible men describe the indescribable. And I want you to watch out for some key words. I'm reading from the NASB. I'm going to be in verse 26 of Ezekiel 1. This is Ezekiel's vision of divine glory. It says, now above the expanse, we just sang this. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. We just sang clothed in rainbows is where we find that. We sing scripture. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Are you, are you catching what Ezekiel is saying? He's saying, I saw God. Okay, what was it like? It was exactly like this? No, he's saying, okay, let me, let me just try to break it down. It was, I can't explain it, but it was, it, it was something like a throne as an appearance. And there was a figure with the appearance of a man. It was something that resembled this. It was something like a glowing metal, like a massive diamond. Okay, a mass, it's just a massive diamond, the size of a building. And then I saw something like fire. And then there was a radiance around him and the appearance of a rainbow. Was it a rainbow? No, it was just something like a rainbow. Come on, think with me. And then there was this appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And and this is all I can explain. But when I saw it, I fell on my face like a dead man. There's no definitive picture. That's why we need a God who reveals himself. Because even presumably one of the most godly men in the Old Testament says, I can't explain. I need a God who explains himself. You need a God who explains himself. And so our hearts yearn to know What God is like, how can we comprehend even remotely the incomprehensible? How can we understand this one who sits on a throne, whose radiance is like a rainbow? How can we know this God? It's because God in condescending love has by means of revelation declared who he is. He speaks. The great comfort of my own heart an angsty overthinker as we have a God who is there. And Francis Schaeffer says, he is not silent. We can know Yahweh because Yahweh speaks. R.C. Sproul says, I love this quote, changed my life. He says, what kind of a God would reveal himself in terms so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite group of scholars and professionals could even understand that God? kind of a God would reveal himself in a way that only PhDs could understand him? Not mine and not yours. He reveals himself to a shepherd here and he speaks to us plainly. Unless God speaks, we cannot know him. This God calls for Moses to come, but then immediately cautions him in the next verse because this speaking God is also number three, holy Yahweh is holy. In verse five, he says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
two elements here. There is a holy angel and then there is holy ground. First, a, a holy angel. It says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Who is this angel of the Lord? Gabriel? Is it Michael? No, it's not Gabriel. It's not Michael. It is someone far superior to them. It is not an angel of the Lord. It is the angel of the Lord. In 2 Peter 1, Peter describes the most amazing thing he's ever seen. It says in 116, we don't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the coming and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you something like Gilgamesh or Beowulf. This isn't a fairy tale or a fantasy. He says, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. And he describes, and he goes on from there to describe what the scene of the transfiguration. He says, I was eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there on that majestic mountain when we saw Moses and Elijah next to Jesus Christ. It was glorious. And it's not just a great sight. My ears heard God the Father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I saw it. Jesus, Elijah, Moses. But Mark 9 was not the first encounter that Moses had with the second person of the Trinity. It wasn't the first interaction he had with the Father's beloved Son. And here at the burning bush, the pre-incarnate Christ meets Moses as the angel of the Lord. That is why this place is holy. Why is the ground holy? Is there something inherently holy about this place? It would be the only place in the world that would be defined as holy in of itself. So it's not like this place is singled out with holy properties. Is the tabernacle holy because of where it's at? No, because the tabernacle's constantly on the move, right? Was the temple holy because of the materials used to construct it? No, the tabernacle is holy. The temple is holy because God is there. And this ground is holy because God is there. There's this command then, take off your shoes. Why is this? Biblical commentary backgrounds would just tell you, hey, there's no universal symbol for I am not worthy to be in your presence. In some cultures, you know, I've been in different places where the most humble thing and respectful thing you can do as you approach a superior is to walk backwards towards them. I've been in other cultures where you lie on your face. I've been in other cultures where you bow and where you bring them with a gift. There's no universal symbol. But there's something that we know about feet. And we just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty rooted in Isaiah 6. And there's seraphim there. And seraphim, these angels surrounding the throne in Isaiah 6, they're not chunky, fat little boss babies, cherubs, you know. These are mighty flaming warriors. They're not babies eating go-gurts on on clouds with little harps. These are flaming warriors, And it says they have six wings because God gives creatures anatomy to fulfill their function. It says with two, they covered their face. Why did they do that? Well, because they're burning ones. And Spurgeon says with everything in their anatomy, they're covering their face saying, don't look at me. Don't look at the lesser glory, Isaiah. Look at the one who sits on the throne. And it says with two, they covered their feet. This is interesting because these were also totally perfect creatures. They are not marred by sin. So, so why are they covering their feet? And it's because we all know that feet are symbols of our creatureliness, that we are nothing like God. And God is also causing Moses in this moment to slow down. 
Take off your shoes. You don't waltz towards God. Ecclesiastes 5, we studied last year at the university. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 says, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. You don't gallivant towards me, Mose. God, Yahweh, is completely holy. Twelve chapters later, Moses is going to sing a hymn of praise. And in verse 11 of chapter 15, he's going to say, Who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness? Who is like the Lord? You know the answer? No one. You are not almost God. You are nothing like God. And in Moses' first interaction with God, he wants Moses to know, you do not just walk here. Slow down, take off your shoes. Because none are like me. More than any other attribute, God is defined by his own holiness. And God never points outside of himself to define himself because there are none like him. He is holy. He has a holy temple, a holy book, a holy mountain. He is marked over and over again in scripture by his holiness. And no one, even if they're familiar with it in scripture, when they see it, yawns. They are not numb to God's holiness. Maybe you can sing holy, 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 but I hope you know that the angels don't just recite that. They are compelled to proclaim it back and forth to one another. And Moses is struck by the holiness of God. And before Moses can be commissioned for a great task, he must begin to understand this. I am nothing like Yahweh. And Yahweh says, I am nothing like you. I have condescended and come near, but don't be flippant with me. Take off your shoes. Number four, Yahweh is eternal. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Maybe you've grown up singing, you are the everlasting God, right? And we just go, yeah, of course, God is everlasting. He lives forever. No one made him and he's always been. And that's always on the back burner of your mind, but apparently it's not on the back burner of Moses's mind when he writes the only psalm he ever wrote. It's on the forefront of Moses's mind that Yahweh is eternal. Yahweh says, I'm the God of your grandpa's grandpa. In Psalm 90, the only psalm written by the man standing before this burning bush Moses begins that psalm and says, Oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all the generations. Before the mountains were born or ever you created the earth and the sea from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Oh God, you are eternal. And this moment stands out to Moses. Why? The last number of years I've lived in this year in Nevada's and, and right at the intersection of Kings Canyon National Park, Sequoia National Forest, there's this mountain there called, you know, there's lake there called Hume Lake. And I always tease kids and I say, hey, buddy, you made that lake. And they say, God. And I'll say, no, God didn't. John Eastwood made that lake in 1908. It's man-made. <laughs> and then I'll say, but buddy, who made those mountains? And then he'll go, God? And then I'll go, no, yes, God. Because no one makes mountains. Mountains in the Old Testament are symbols of solidity and strength. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 121, I look to the mountains. Where can my help come from? Because no one fosters mountains. God makes mountains. And Moses in Psalm 90 saying, before the mountains were born, I didn't make them. No king did. You beget them, God. 
He's saying, before these mountains were born, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Psalm 90, verse 4, he says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by. Moses is struck by God's eternality. Are you? He says, a thousand years are like this to God. Here are the empires of the last 1,000 years. The Holy Roman Empire, not to be confused with the Roman Empire, the Western Chalukya Empire, the Western Qi Dynasty in China, the Second Bulgarian Empire that lasted 237 years, the Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Aztec Empire, the British Empire, the German Empire, the American Empire, and Yahweh says, yesterday. Think about the task God is about to give Moses. I want you to go to the most powerful man in the world with this stick in your hand. And I want you to tell him to let my people go. But as Moses leaves for a daunting task, Yahweh wants Moses to know Pharaoh has a birthday and he will have a death day. But only I am from everlasting to everlasting. Sometimes this just trips off our tongue. God is everlasting. But when the earth is shaking and when the world seems to be crumbling, God tells Moses, put this Pharaoh against the backdrop of my eternality and you'll be just fine. Have you ever rested in the reality of God's eternality? That he's not learning anything new? He's got no wrinkles. He's not any more wise this year than last year. He's the God of Moses. He's the God of Moses' fathers and the God of all creation. Number five, Yahweh sees. Look at verse seven. It says, then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their suffering. Turn back real quick to chapter two, verse 24. It says, so God heard the groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. Verse seven, it says, I have seen the affliction of my people. The report of Israel's sufferings didn't come to God by some sort of a medium. There's no third party. It wasn't relayed to God by one of his minions. He's saying, Moses, I wanna let you know something. I have seen this, I've observed it, and everything under heaven has my equal focus and attention, but especially this. I know this and I've seen this. This is amazing. Yahweh wants you to see this in his word. All of the rest of Exodus is going to be a response to this verse. I've seen what's happening to my people and I'm done with it. Because the Lord hears and he sees. He hears the cries of his children. He hears the cries of his people. Not just then, but today. And in response, God is going to move heaven and earth through Moses to rescue his children from slavery. Jeremiah 23 verse 24 says, can a man hide himself in secret place so that I do not see him? I feel heaven and earth declares Yahweh. I see everything. Even the most watchful parent sleeps, but the scripture makes it clear that God never slumbers. Psalm 121. He never looks away. He never nods off and he watches over his people. Not in the sense where he's just generally aware of them. I always think that sometimes when we think of God's omniscience or his omnipresence, that we just kind of think God is hovering. And it's so, uh, it's, it's so comforting to know, right? That God's not just generally aware of you. He sees you. 
In Psalm 121, verse three, and then five through eight, it says, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He watches over you. The Lord will watch you. You're coming and you're going both now and forevermore. God doesn't just see nations in Genesis 16. Hagar is, is just down. She's been kicked out by Sarah. And she, the angel of the Lord comes to greet her and says, hey, here's what's gonna happen to your descendants. And she says, now I will call you El Roy because you are a God who sees me. And God sees nations and he sees people. Number six here, Yahweh delivers. Look at verse eight. He says, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. He's saying, I have come down to deliver them. That's why I'm here. He comes down to bring them up. I will deliver them from bondage to blessing. And when in the scripture, God uses the vernacular of deliverance, he is describing something that only he can do. Moses' mission here isn't to help God. God is the one who is going to deliver his people. God delivers nations and people from situations and bondages that no human ever could because it's in that type of context where God gets all the glory. One of the attributes last semester that we studied that I'd never heard anybody really preach on was the jealousy of God. And that is God's constant aim to promote and proclaim and prioritize his own glory. Sometimes at camp, I'll bring a person up to sing happy birthday to him like a youth pastor. And it's just the most awkward one minute, you know, because what do you do? Sing along with the people or, you know, just go, hey, no, it's okay, thanks. <laughs> you know, what do you do? It's an awkward moment. And we just think people are, ah, shucks, thanks, guys. Okay. And we almost think in our minds, because we like when people are self-deprecating, that when we tell God, oh, you, God, you deserve all the glory. We almost think God is like us, that he'll go, thanks. Thanks, thank you. Sit sit down. You're good. You're good. No, Yahweh says, louder. For the people in the back, get the megaphone. I am the only one who can deliver because I am all about my own glory. Don't you get this, Mose? I am all about my own glory. He doesn't say, ah, shucks. He says, write this down. I am the only one that can do this. Leviticus eleven forty five. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Leviticus 25, 55. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your God. Psalm 81, I am God. I am the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Jeremiah 32, 31. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt, O God. Amos 2, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is not modest about this. He only delivers people and nations who recognize they could never deliver themselves. He is a delivering God. And number seven, Yahweh is with us. I want to look with you at verse 11 and 12. 
But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He's saying, man, and later on we'll, we'll recognize that Moses has some sort of like a, a speech impediment. He goes, God, God, I, I, I can't talk good. Who am I? I'm an 80-year-old shepherd. And God says, bingo. He doesn't even answer Moses' question. Verse 12, who am I? He doesn't say, you're Moses. I made you. He goes, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Yahweh is with us. One of my heroes, John Knox, says, one man with God is always in the majority. Moses feels unqualified, weak, and afraid. And for that reason, God says, hired. No bravado, no confidence. God doesn't commission him for this task. And Moses says, all right, dude, I'll check back in after I deliver them. All right, I'll circle back. He says, no, who am I? And God says, you're with me. When you think about the book of Exodus, which I've spent much of the last year in, we always think it's about kind of the plagues or whatever God might be doing. Two-thirds of the book of Exodus are about the tabernacle, about God dwelling with his people. This is important for you to recognize. God is with his people. He's not just aware of them, he's with them. We're almost out of time. But I want to ask you a question that I asked every single week last semester in our Bible study because it's important. What is the Bible ultimately all about? It's all about Jesus. And sometimes we get lost. And Jesus gives us this answer in Luke 24 when he's talking with two men on the road to Emmaus. He said, what are you, what are you guys down about? And they said, are, are you dumb? We thought this guy was the Messiah. We thought he was the Messiah. And now he's dead. And Jesus says, what are you doing, you knuckleheads? Slow of heart to believe. Didn't you know all of this is about me? Everything revealed in my word and every single attribute of God that has been manifested to you, it's about me. It points to me. It reveals me. The Bible is about Jesus. And in the incarnation, the one who appeared to Moses as a flame of light appears as a baby. The eternal one outside of space and time entered time and tabernacled. John 1.14, literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The Holy One lived a holy life and then died a criminal's death as the full measure of God's wrath was poured out on Christ for all unholiness. The Son died to deliver us, not from the bondage of Egypt, but from your bondage to sin and shame. Yes, Hebrews 1 says, long ago, God spoke to our fathers in many portions and in many ways, writing on the wall, a donkey, a burning bush. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who? Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. He speaks through Jesus Christ, which means for you and I, you don't need a burning bush moment. You need a burning passion for the word of God. This Jesus promises his presence to us, not in the form of a temple or a tabernacle, but through his spirit, which lives within all believers today 
And for this reason, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This Jesus sees and knows you and says he knows and calls his sheep by name. What's the Bible all about? Jesus Christ. And what's the Bible's question? Do you know him? Not just have you heard truth about him. But when we describe our God, do you go, that's my God. I know him. He already knows you. And I love what J.I. Packer says in knowing God. What matters supremely in the final analysis of things is not that we can know God, but that he knows you and has written you on the palms of his hands, holds your tears in a bottle. And one day we'll give you a white rock with a new name. You will have a nickname with God when you meet him face to face if you're in Christ. If not, I pray you do. I know at like a biblically solid church, we sometimes just assume, I never want to. I hope you know this God and I'm thankful for him. Can I pray? Lord, we are grateful for your word. And and Lord, just a, a flyover of these attributes that each deserves a book. And many books have been written. But Lord, would we be reminded of your self-existence and your self-sustaining nature, that you are the only one that can sustain people that are dust, it says in Psalm 103. You are mindful of our frame. You know that we are but dust. You are holy. You are with us. And Lord, for those in Christ, you have delivered us. And God, our response is total gratitude. And even we sang this morning, out of Isaiah 6, it's only after Isaiah has his guilt taken away and his sin atoned for that he says, here am I, send me. I'll do whatever for a God who has removed my sin and shame. I pray that that would be our own hearts. God, we pray that you would grow our love and affection for you as we more deeply understand the God who is holy and whom we not dare approach casually has through Jesus Christ allowed us to enter into your presence with confidence. And Lord, would that grow our affection for you as we understand your love for us. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.